Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. Molto bene. Ciao. Ciao. Buonasera. Uh, We are in Italy. Yeah. Yeah, We're in Italy and I don't know any... Italian. I do, I know. Come stai? It sounds so similar. So bonjour is French. And yes. I keep accidentally saying it here. But I have to add the no at the end. Yeah. It's, it's like more flamboyant French. Bonjour. Oh my god, Grace, we've just been out for lunch before and um so I put on this weird accent and start talking really slowly by accident. Mm. When I think people can't understand me. And Grace starts like manically waving her hands in the air, not like the Italians do, but kind of like just like waving a flag in the air or something. But they're not universal symbols for anything. Like I think I'm explaining something to them, and it's just more confusing. You were trying to ask if they took card, and you're and waving just your hands like a, down like like this. a Mexican flag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just opened the fridge to have some chocolate. We're staying at this cute little hotel in Milan. Wait, did we say we were here? Yes, just now. For Fashion Week. Yeah, we're in the line for Fashion Week. And Grace asked for a hazelnut out of this fucking 5kg bag of hazelnuts in the fridge. I picked it up thinking it wasn't open because we literally just bought them. She's already been in there like a little mouse. A little mouse. And they're, now they're all over the floor. They're all over the floor. They spilled literally everywhere. I just literally couldn't everywhere. stop laughing because Izzy picked it up from the worst possible corner and then they started falling out of this little hole and then like they just kept falling and falling and falling. It took you so long to like register what was happening. <laughs> Now all my precious hazelnuts are on the ground. I'm still going to eat them. I know, but as a hack, I well, just a life thing I didn't realize. I just had one off the ground, and it tastes so fucking delicious, like Nutella. Is was, she was like, hazelnuts are good. Like, I didn't know. No. I was like, yeah, that's why I bought them. Fuck it out. Delicioso. Yeah, well, we got here yesterday. So in, like, the UK, but I feel like this is the thing that always happens is you can book flights from Stansted that are literally 
four pounds or something. Our flights were five pounds each. Five pounds each, which is nine dollars. But then you have to add baggage because they yeah, get you good. But they get you. That's good. only like thirty. <laughs> it's still nothing, but that means you have to leave at like five in the morning, and it's just a misery getting to the airport. But then it's always worth it. But yeah, I mean, Izzy got on the coach at like five. And we're both so depressed to be going. Izzy thought she forgot her passport and then she found it all both like, damn it. I know. I literally was like, God, I think I don't have my passport. And then I was for like, two seconds. Oh se- no. Yeah, for two seconds we were just in this joyous state thinking we could go home to bed. But we made it here alive, which is actually very lovely. Have been eating like an insane amount of pasta and what else? Nothing. Yeah, we'll have more to update you on. In the coming week. Yeah, I didn't post on Close Friends for two days, but I just have started again. Back up. Just posted our hazelnut situation. Yeah, very <laughs> exciting content behind the paywall, ladies. <laughs> uh, but, okay, so what have you been, other than eating hazelnuts off the floor, doing this week? I watched the whole new season of Sex Education oh, in wow. like three days. Good. I really love that show. Yeah. I really love that show. It's one of those things where you watch it and you think, I really love that show, and then you just forget and don't think you love it, and then you start watching it again and you're like, this is just – I think it's one of the best shows on TV right now. It's so well written. I love all the characters. It's really smart. Sometimes it can be a bit worthy, obviously, Yeah. where it's like, all vaginas are valid, and you're like, okay, but – but that's it's good for young it's, it's great for younger for younger people watching it, exactly. We only realised our vaginas were valid like last year. When we did that thing. <laughs> we did the thing. They talk about the site that we recommended. Really? Where you can look at all the different vulvas. Mm. But no, it's it's super cute. It opens with this really like horny montage of all this cute, messy, sloppy, horny sex. Good. And just continues from there. They just touch on such amazing things. Like in the last season, it ended with Gillian Anderson being pregnant and it goes into, they call it geriatric pregnancy, which is so fucked up if you're over 45 and you're pregnant. It's, it's such an awful phrase and it goes through all of the doctors and things being really judgmental about her and how there's all this stigma about being a geriatric mom. And then there's a scene. That is so crazy. It's crazy. And there's a bit where she's like yelling at the doctor being like, this is so It's awful. outrageous. It's outrageous. So what? You get shit if you're a young mom and you get shit if you're an old mom. Yeah. You have to be 29. Otherwise like 32. It's, yeah. It's really fascinating because it's just something I just had no idea about. And then there's this amazing, amazing, I think the best scene in the whole thing is a sex scene with the character who's in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Do you remember him from the last season? Mm-hmm. And the person he's having sex with is explaining what works and what doesn't and what turns him on and what doesn't turn him on and how to do it. And they're like navigating their way through it. And it's just so beautifully done. And I just thought I've never, ever seen anything that depicts what it's like to be not able-bodied and having sex. Mm. And it was like a really sexy sex scene still. It was just super cool. I think Laurie Nunn is just amazing. Yeah, that's so great. Is Jemima Kirk in this? Yeah, so she's the principal and she's like the baddie. Amazing. Which happens really quickly. I really love her. I love her. I found her Met Gala Rick carpet coverage so funny. She just took so went funny. on her Instagram stories and was just absolutely like – hitting everyone it was hilarious apparently then, she was really baked she said the next day because i assumed like netflix or something told her off <laughs> yeah she, and she said i'm sorry i got really high and reviewed it everyone should just calm down 
She's so yeah, cool. someone, yeah, someone, I think it was like Sean Penn or someone was like re-gramming what she was posting and then said, but, and then posted this hideous photo of her at the Met Gala. <laughs> I was like, the internet is hilarious. Isn't that so funny? I know. And then it was funny because she, with Lord's outfit, she goes, can you seriously just put in some effort, please, full stop? Mm-hmm. And I was just laughing. And then she screenshotted Lena Dunham texting her being like, you're so amazing about the Met Gala coverage. And then I remembered... Lena Dunham, oh my Lord, God. Beef, Jack Antonoff. And then I was like, was that her being a good friend to Lena Dunham by being mean about Lord's outfit? Oh, my God. I don't know. So much drama. Okay, well, I have been continuing my incredibly lowbrow reign of terror terror, <laughs> um, and decided just for no reason, really, my friend was staying with me in London last week and we were just having this really fun kind of pretending we were – flatmates at uni when we were 22 again phase and started watching the bachelor usa which is like the old season that we've talked about on the pod before with that guy the first ever black bachelor the guy matt james oh you're watching that in real time i'm watching it well i'm watching it a year as later it, but yeah now the whole thing episode. and rachel kirkconnell who was the girl who had won by the time all of this racism he was such pee brains last night and we we're like who could you look like if you could look like anyone and then izzy was like this girl from the bachelor and then you put it up and you're like oh wait you know it's the racist one <laughs> i was like that racist <laughs> bachelor girl just like mila kunis um <laughs> but yeah so she had already won by the time it all came out that at university she'd gone to a party on a plantation and she dressed up like a native american indian had she yeah that was the other there were two things double strike i know know. and then i'm watching the season and she's really cute and they're so in love and they're so in love that they have to keep not putting the cameras on them on dates and stuff because he keeps going he literally goes to her she was like i'm falling in love with you and he was like i'm falling in love with you too and there was like 10 girls left (laughs) i was like you're literally not allowed to say that yeah it was really cute and they yeah they get along super well but then they just form all this drama in the house because they can't show him with on dates with girls because it's obvious who wins from the get-go so they just have all of this crazy drama the girls with with the the girls there's a girl called queen victoria (laughs) she calls herself a queen and she's just absolutely hilarious like definitely a paid actor but i just don't even give a shit she's such a good actor yeah but anyway basically i already know what happens and so does the rest of the world rachel wins and then they break up because of the races and stuff and now they're back together Oh, so nice. Yeah. <laughs> I know. A modern fairy tale. Yes. Okay, let's talk about your viral piece for British Vogue published this week to much acclaim about high-functioning depression. We actually first discussed this on our ill-fated episode. That's right. That is gone forever. And then I said an episode – you have to pitch this as a story. Yes. And here we are. And here we are today. Yeah, Grace said, you need to pitch a story about this. And then we said, Emily, about our editor, please delete this because yes. someone else will hear it on the pod and pitch it <laughs> and before pitch it me. Right under your feet. But it was actually from speaking to Chloe Swarbrick, who I talked to recently for another piece for Refinery29, who's absolutely amazing, the New Zealand politician we've had on the pod before. It was through talking to her that I realized that high-functioning depression was even a thing, which is crazy because I've been living with it for years, but it's because it's not an official diagnosis, 
my psychologist had never used those terms with me. And because she hadn't used that term with me, I kept kind of minimizing my experience and sort of like beating myself up for feeling the way I feel daily and kind of being like, everything is fine. You're living your life. You have a job, blah, blah, blah. Just shut up. Like, why are you, in, why are you thinking all these thoughts? Just get over it. And also because depression is like always depicted as someone being in a kind of textbook major depressive state of, you know, not sleeping, not eating, not being able to get out of bed in the morning, completely retreating, not going to work. It then makes people who have other forms of depression or who have major depressive disorder but are still high functioning not realize that they have depression and not realize they need help. Mm. So basically, yeah, through that, through that, I actually found out a lot of stuff. And I was like, what was I paying my stupid psych for? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I didn't realize that, you know, there's nine major forms of depression. There's major depressive disorder, which can be an episode that lasts as little as two weeks. And there's also persistent depressive disorder and you can kind of come in and out of these depressions. You know, it's like a spectrum that you can move back and forth between one and the other. So I think what happened with me is I went through this, my first ever major depressive bout, as you all know, (laughs) in the winter of 2019 after that traumatic breakup. And then since then, I kind of came out of that state of depression, but I've been living with persistent depressive disorder since then both times really high functioning. So when, as Grace will remember, I was in that really, really bad state. I was like literally at the office at our co-working space where we did not need to be. No one gave a shit at eight o'clock every single morning. I was doing workouts. I was like texting Grace being like, where are you? We need to do the X, Y, Z, rah, rah, rah. We need to get this done. And I was like a mess of a human being as in bawling, crying all the time, absolute shell of a human, but still could eat, still could sleep, still could go to work every day. And it was also like your way of trying to deal with those feelings was to try and like push some sense of like order and Mm. framework around it to make it easier. So the idea that – it's so funny that the idea that you doing that is a sign – you can't okay. have depression when it's actually a sign that you're not okay. It, it just shows how complicated mental illness is. And I think it shows how difficult it is for – maybe not how difficult it is for people around you, but how much more nuanced we have to be in thinking about mental illness in our friends because, like you say, I think we're so used to depression manifesting itself as, yet yeah, can't or get out of bed, can't leave the house, or, yet yeah, being depicted this way that people might not necessarily – and this obviously happened to you – people not necessarily being there for you or supporting you in the ways that you need them to because they're expecting a serious mental health break to look differently. Yeah. And then now living with like this kind of lower level of depression daily, it's, I got a lot of messages from people who feel the exact same way where it's like you beat yourself up all the time because you think nothing is wrong and I just wish my brain would just feel okay. And it kind of feels as though you're working with kind of 70% capacity because I can work still, but I can't do as much as I used to be able to do because I feel really overwhelmed really easily. You kind of feel like you're not working at the capacity you wish you could, but then you also can't really figure out. It feels as though I shouldn't go on medication because I'm still getting through. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's like this confusing middle ground. And I do think obviously psychology is a massive one and there are heaps of things you can do as in I've been you know writing in a gratitude journal every day and practicing exercise because I know that helps my mental health and there are things you can do to help it but I just think that so many people who message me didn't even realize that 
they were suffering from depression because you don't even know about persistent depressive disorder. And I didn't even know as well because I always feel worse in the morning that that's an actual medical thing. Yeah, I was really fascinated about that as well because I then spoke to friends afterwards who have said I have the inverse of that where I feel really great and positive and optimistic in the morning and then as the day wears on I feel like it's taking a more taxing toll on my mental health and I've never – I've just assumed that's who I am versus like an expression of a medical issue Mm. that I can be seeing someone to help work on. Yeah, the tricky thing is is that high-functioning depression isn't a proper medical term but that's because it fits into the remit of these other depressions. So you wouldn't make it a whole new category because people fit into all these other categories and can be high functioning. It's just more like reworking how we think of depression. Yeah. And I think it like that probably, I'm just thinking as you're saying this extends to anxiety because I even think I'm sure there's like such thing as high functioning anxiety because mm-hmm. before I got diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, I was in this absolute constant state of just terror and I was exhausted every day because I was so, I didn't realize how on edge I was about everything and catastrophizing every single situation sometimes I would get so anxious that I would get physically sick and that would just happen a lot and I just didn't even understand what it was it's so easy to just think shut up it's not that bad which I do when I first started seeing my psychologist I saw her and I would say all of these things and every single time I would say you know whatever it was that was upsetting me or whatever it was that had happened in my life I would just say but there's so many people that have it worse than me and she Mm -hmm. was just like stop doing that because this is your experience and with this And it doesn't make your experience easier to say that. It's not like you're then like, oh, wait, I feel fine now because I remembered that poverty exists. But even today, I said that to you when we were were having lunch in Milan and we had like a white wine in hand. And I was just like, God, I just wish I felt good. Like I wish I felt happy Mm. today. And you were like, you don't need to feel happy every day. But it's so easy to just get in your own head and just say, oh, my God, shut up. But I was actually talking to a friend the other day who said that what helped her, it was actually a RuPaul's Drag Race thing. I think Mm. Katia said it on a podcast that what helps for her is giving the negative thoughts a name because instead, basically I walk around and just go shut the fuck up to myself. Mm -hmm. And she said that Katia does it where she gives the negative thoughts a name. I think her name was like, Susan or something. I was going to say, something really, I've heard is Susan or yeah, Sharon. Yeah, or yeah, yeah, Sharon, something really silly. And so you go, oh, shut up, Sharon, go away. And then it's and then it's not you beating yourself up and being really mean about yourself. It's you be, being mean about like these thoughts that don't belong. Yeah. And the other thing I've been practicing is just saying, it's okay. Like you feel a bit down. That's all right. You have depression. You're going to feel like this for a little bit and then it'll go away. Yeah. And I think it's just the biggest thing I realized in therapy and I have to keep reminding myself and keep realizing is that thoughts are just thoughts. You have thousands coursing through your mind every single day and you get your brain gets into patterns of behavior of which ones it latches onto, which is basically what mental health disorders are. So if you're in a state of depression, your brain is latching on to the negative thoughts as they pass through your brain mm. and prioritizing those. And if you have anxiety, it's latching on to the worst case scenario thoughts and prioritizing those. So you're probably having the same influx of thoughts anyone else is but what's you know getting the biggest headline in your mind is the bad ones on the front page of the front page of the bugle (laughs) is just like everyone hates you or you're stupid stupid and that's the thing that's really hard is to just disassociate thoughts like if one comes in just be like okay (laughs) yeah instead of seizing on it and being like what does this mean (laughs) yeah and you seize on the the negative ones so much more because you're just like Exactly. You're just like, why am I thinking this? Yeah. But yeah, I I hope that it helped a few gals and guys. Got a lot of lovely messages. Felt a bit 
felt felt fine generally because I'm obviously a very open person. Mm. Felt fine when I pub- felt fine writing it. Actually, felt a bit like emotional in the week of like writing it, but then felt completely fine publishing it. Didn't even think twice. Was just having this fun day, and then for the rest of the weekend, just felt a bit like raw and what is it? Just a bit vulnerable. Yeah, vulnerable. Yeah. I guess, but. It's good to share. That's how I felt after our heartbreak ep. I yeah. we like released it and then we were just having this fun night watching Midsummer. And then oh. for two days after I was like, oh, I feel sad and sick. You're probably just disturbed from the ending of Midsummer. And nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, on to a very sad case gripping the internet in the last few days. The case of Gabrielle Petito, who is a twenty two year old. American woman who was a kind of small-scale van life YouTube vlogger, which is uh, basically a group of kind of millennials who gave up on real life and the traps of capitalism and went out living out of a van and traveling the country, whichever country. She was reported missing by her family earlier this month and in the last 48 hours her body has been discovered so she has been killed and at the kind of center of the case is her fiance whose name is Brian Laundrie basically the couple shared a lot of their couple photos on their respective Instagram and YouTube accounts they ran a shared YouTube account and he is the prime suspect because they had been hiking together in late August he had returned from the hiking trip well, no, they were doing like a full van trip around the country together. Yeah, but they'd gone, hadn't they gone off to like a specific trail that didn't have Wi Fi or something? Well, that's what he's saying, yeah. Yeah, so they basically, her parents were expecting to hear back from them and it didn't happen for ages. He got back on September 1st, but her parents couldn't get in contact with him or his family and they didn't file a missing persons report until September 11th because they were kind of used to her being out of service for a long time. He's since gone missing and it's basically uh, generated this micro industry of TikTokers and Instagrammers, mainly TikTokers, who have become obsessed with this case and are now trawling through all of Gabby's old Instagram posts, all of his old Instagram posts, trying to look for clues, suggesting that he's written posts off of her account, trying to piece together the whole thing and solve the murder, basically. And it's kind of called into question, you know, vigilante justice online. Is social media activism actually helpful for solving crimes? Is this all turning into a gross, like, public spectacle? Very interesting stuff. Yeah, Yeah. true crime. Yeah, so what happened was the Daily Mail reported that Gabby was missing on September 13th and this woman on TikTok, Paris Campbell, who had 150,000 followers, saw the story and thought, you know, I haven't seen it much on social media. I haven't seen her face really being shared. So I'm going to use my platform to try and raise awareness about it. Basically, that went viral. And then people went absolutely, yeah, crazy, as you say. So... I think the the mystery around it is no one really knows when Gabby was killed or what happened in those kind of last weeks of August because her last Instagram post was on August 26th. But on it, it says, Happy Halloween, and she's holding a pumpkin, 
and it's obviously nowhere near Halloween. So everyone started thinking, like, did she just, did she share this or not? There's so many comments. She had. And she's back in obviously a city, like a built up city somewhere. Yeah. Which is, it seems as if it's trying to suggest that she got out of the park they were in and is now in a city somewhere. Yeah. It's one of the only, so the only, the two last photos on her account are not geotagged. Every other photo is geotagged. The way she's posting seems different. So people have kind of picked up on all of these things. And basically it's gone so viral that she now has a million Instagram followers. Before that, she had about 15,000, was it? Did I tell you? Yeah. So it feels a bit icky. You read all these comments and people are saying things like, and it can be helpful at the same time. That's why it's a bit confusing. Because what's happened in this case is it went so viral that then... A couple who were camping in a park, same van life vibe, a friend contacted them and said, hey, like this couple could have been in the same park at the same time as you. Can you check all of your footage? And these people are also YouTubers. And so they went through all of their content to see if they could see Gabby and Brian's van, saw what they thought was Gabby and Brian's van in the background, alerted the police. The police went and searched the park and that's how they found her body. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, this is the thing that's so complicated and like interesting to have been reading about today is the lines of where social media involvement in cases is helpful versus where it's not it does kind of feel like a lot of the progress that's been made in this case would have been made regardless of social media i mean it's pretty obvious what happened. yeah she was with her partner he's like fled the country slash disappeared mm. maybe getting the access to people that had footage of them happened quicker because there was call outs on social media but i guess that would be police officers next port of call would be to be figuring out who was in the park and trying to get that information so it's it, i don't think it's necessarily that people on social media are doing the police's job for them and there are breakthroughs like you said that have happened only because of social media but i do think that because so many of the people getting involved in this are on TikTok, a lot of them seem very young and don't seem, you know, when you're young, you're just very earnest and very enthusiastic, but you also have like the part of your brain that feels genuine empathy isn't fully formed yet. So you're seeing things as a spectacle to engage in versus what people in our late 20s, early 30s see as, which is this disgraceful, disgusting tragedy likely domestic violence case that just has like no place being the center of tiktok trends and instagram tiles and this obsession about where this guy is so i think the age of the people that are obsessing over it has a huge factor but it also makes you think then well we are obsessed with the teacher's pet and we watch all these true crime things on things so what is the line of what's acceptable versus what isn't a buzzfeed piece i was reading says on instagram accounts like gabby at Gabby Petito, at Find Gabby Petito, and at Five Find Gabs Petito have cropped up to dissect every aspect of Petito's life via her Instagram posts and share theories with other obsessives. The hashtag Gabby Petito on TikTok at the time of writing had nearly 700 million views. Um, while the accounts were at first calling for people to raise awareness and search for Petito, since authorities found her body on Sunday, they've transitioned to searching for Laundry, who has since vanished himself and calling for justice. As the case has gone more and more viral, traditional influencers have also started posting about it, asking followers for their opinions and sharing their own polls along the lines of, do you think Brian's parents helped him? And I think Brian did it. What do you think? Yeah, there was also the case of, I don't want to say her name, but a girl who basically created a TikTok account and discussed how she'd picked up Brian from the park where he 
reportedly would have left the National Park and he hitchhiked in the back of her car and how he was being really suspicious and was talking about his fiance and all of this stuff. And she has racked up like hundreds of millions of views and comments and followers at this point. And that's kind of a really good example of something that just hasn't been verified by the police whatsoever that is now being shared as factual evidence and is potentially evidence of someone leveraging the popularity of this murder for TikTok popularity. Like not necessarily, but it's possible, you know Mm. what I mean? And it seems that people are tapping into this as a trending topic to try and grow their own profiles or create a community or do all of these like very facile social media things. Yeah, which is so disgusting. Some girls on TikTok who are posting heaps will post a theory and then they'll post another video saying, oh, that theory I posted before is being debunked, but they won't delete it because it's got heaps and heaps of views. Yeah, and I saw someone saying that people are creating playlists on TikTok of all the best theories about what happened so people can go in and follow a playlist and watch all the stuff. It's Um, so sad. It's just awful. I think – you know, it's it kind of reminds me of the O.J. Simpson trial, which I guess is like the first mass media pop culture moment where a domestic violence murder was turned into entertainment. And I think since then we've just seen that happen over and over and over again where we just take this very sick and twisted voyeuristic approach to someone's pain. And I think it was Alfred Hitchcock that said, I can't remember, he had some quote about how there's nothing more beautiful than and there's nothing more something than a beautiful dead woman. And it was always in his thriller movies. There would always be a shot of a dead, like beautiful, usually white blonde woman mm. as this thing that human beings are always going to be obsessed with. I just can't quite figure out what it is about that, that we just are drawn to and so obsessed with. It's just, if, you know, this was a gay couple and uh, a man had killed another man in the exact same circumstances, so social media and the influences and it's all kind of interesting. I just still don't think it would have taken off to this degree. There's no. just something about dead young women that we just fetishize. Yeah, and there's also been obviously a lot of conversation about the fact that this case has gone so viral, partly due to the fact that, as you say, Gabby is a white, petite, blonde, beautiful young woman. The phenomenon has been dubbed in the past missing white woman syndrome, where there's just a hugely disproportionate attention on missing white women. But there's something, there is something different in Gabby's case and that's it happening in real time and people being able to follow all of these clues on social media and feeling like they're part of this story. I think the vlogger thing is such a huge part of why it blew up so crazily, but it's also just, it's it's just, would be so sad if you were not a parent of a missing person and this case was getting so much coverage and you couldn't get anyone to focus on your missing child. Exactly. And the thing that's so disturbing about it is that it is it is kind of unremarkable in a sense. Like domestic violence murders we know are just really common and they don't have any motive or rival reason to them. It's just like disgraceful male violence a lot of the time. And I think it's our obsession with influencer culture and celebrity culture and social media and clout chasing and all of these things that has turned, you know, something – that happens regularly in the news cycle into something that people are obsessed with. And it's the thing with the media playing such a huge part as well, Mm. because not only are the media overwhelmingly white, so focus more on white stories, but also the fact that they care about getting clicks. And so they're seeing this going crazy. So they're stoking the fire even more with just way more stories about it than any other 
person. And I think on social media, especially accounts like Gabby's and Brian's, they're set up in a way to make you feel like they're your friends. Mm. Like the whole vlogger thing, you know, the reason why people love Emma Chamberlain or Devin Carlson or any of those Nikki tutorials, any of those YouTube people is because you feel like they're literally your mate because it feels so intimate. So I think part of this as well is that people are then watching videos of, of her or of them together and feeling as if it's someone they know who's gone missing. So there's this extra emotional attachment to it that doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. And it is hard to, when you watch before I just put on one of her videos and it's really hard to watch a video of a person chatting to the camera and talking and laughing and not feel differently than if you hadn't seen that. Totally. To like a different, another person. And it's hard to not get involved in the sleuthing. I was like, oh, these kids sleuthing. And then within 10 minutes, I was like, was that post by Brian or? I know. Yeah. I know. <sighs> that it reminds us both of that disgusting Chris Watts case. Did we ever talk about it on the podcast? The American Murder so, Next Door? I I didn't even know you'd watched it. Yeah. But this disgusting man in America basically started bussing a, another woman and was married and had two kids. And it was kind of, it was very similar in the way that his wife, Shannon, was a massive poster on Facebook. So she shared absolutely everything. So the other thing with this documentary was it was basically a full – you could just see every element of their lives because she'd filmed it That's all. right. Yeah. And, then and it was, like, time-stamped up to, like, just before she got murdered as mm. well because she did it, like, all through the day. Yeah. And then he murdered her and basically thought he was going to get away with it because he's an absolute imbecile and was kind of doing all these interviews with the police and trying to help them find her. And it's really – it's just, yeah, it's sad and gro- – it's so gross. It's gross. It just makes me feel, like, very – icky and disgusting and then you were telling me about don't fuck with cats oh yeah i think don't, I, I saw a lot of people referencing don't fuck with cats which i think is a really good example of why internet vigilantism is so flawed it's a netflix documentary about a group of a, a, fa- a closed facebook group that became obsessed with catching this specific murderer got their eyes set on this one individual who they became convinced was the perpetrator felt that the police were doing nothing so kind of harassed and and bullied him because they 100% believed he was guilty he eventually died by suicide and then the police caught the actual perpetrator later and the whole time had been completely oblivious to the fact that this Facebook group existed so while this Facebook group was going into the minutiae of details about this case that they thought you know were things that were relevant to the police or were helping the police or were forwarding to the police or whatever this sort of old-fashioned detective work that the police were doing over time led them to the actual killer. And I do think that there's this, you know, people are very anti-police nowadays and disenfranchised with, you know, institutions and things. And I do think that people on the internet now do believe genuinely that they're better equipped to do things like policing and murder investigations than (laughs) police are, which is just where this kind of internet culture just runs them up because it's like yeah it's like okay, brian wasn't yeah. gonna get away with it <laughs> that's what i mean i'm like the internet hasn't done people can patting themselves on the back saying we're helping solve this murder it's like she went away with her fiance 90 percent of women's murders are committed by people they know slash domestic partners he's fled the country since she's disappeared like it's hardly a one that needed tiktok's it's input to figure it out it. yeah it's hardly a whodunit brian yeah. done it so yeah very interesting. Yeah. And very sad. Very sad.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We are now going to talk our long awaited, our long awaited review of Sally Rooney's. Beautiful world, where are you? We are not actually going to put... There's not going to be spoilers in it, really. No. No, like no plot spoilers. No. So if you haven't finished it, I mean, feel free to listen or feel free to come back, pause the pod and go and finish the book. Okay. So what did you think? So I've only read Normal People. I haven't read Conversations with Friends, but Normal People, I think I bought at an airport and read in the first three hours of a plane trip without stopping. So it was this kind of like ultimate page turner. So in that sense, I did find this one a bit of a slog because it took me a minute to get into it. I agree. But by the end, I ended up really liking it. I would say it's, again, I haven't read conversations with friends. I would say I liked normal people better. But I think it was much more ambitious and she was – trying out new things and flexing her skills as a writer in a way where not everything landed but it's interesting to see artists do that as opposed to just pumping out more of what you can do well yeah I agree I think it's it's kind of funny because in a way she obviously did do that where basically the book follows two best friends again around the same age as Rooney as in all of her other books again set in Ireland which is where she's from so she does like to kind of explore her own experience and the experience of others around her. But then um, what separates this book from Conversations with Friends and Normal People is basically that interspersed throughout basically every couple of pages, really. There's emails back and forth between the two pr- protagonists. Alice and Elaine, they're best friends and they live in, a, in different parts of the country right now because Alice, who's a novelist, went and moved to the seaside, to the small town after having a mental breakdown. So that's what makes it different to her other books. And it's also interesting because basically this is the first book Sally Rooney has written since her phenomenal success. Mm. And I think she's really clearly grappling with that on every page, which is kind of, I find it a bit random (laughs) like I Mm. like what she's saying but I also think that the way she says it so basically Alice is a novelist and it's just it's just so obviously Sally Rooney writing about her own life so Alice is this novelist she's not just a novelist she's a novelist who sold two multi-million dollar selling 
sensational books and everyone thinks she's a prodigy and she's not even 29 yet and yeah. everyone's so obsessed with her and wants her on every literary circuit. Yeah, and she has like a million dollars and she she just says the most Sally Rooney things ever. I think it's really kind of ambitious and quite crazy to do that. And I do find what she says about, you know, being a novelist in today's society really, really interesting. She just says it's crazy how, you know, you – these people write a book and then you like lock them in a room and tell them they're the most amazing people in the world and then expect them to continue to be able to write about everyday experiences when they're just locked up in this cage and they yeah. don't even experience anything every day anymore. And she, so true. and she talks about how she, Alice, <laughs> not Sally, but also Sally did the exact same thing. She spent the last year writing this in New York. Alice talks about how she was in New York at all of these literary parties and all of the people would just be talking about all these literary awards that they wanted to win and then how they're writing about everyday experiences. And she was just like, none of you are living everyday lives anymore. So I think Sally's kind of finding it hard to grapple with that while still write the content that the, the, the relatable content that everyone kind of wants from her. Yeah, hundred percent. I I I think that I struggled with the emails at the start because it felt like she just had bones to pick with certain things that she'd wanted to write as a substack that he, she'd shoved into a novel. Like that's yes. how it felt sometimes. It just felt like she was typing out things she was thinking that she thought were clever about capitalism and sexuality and modern society and ethics and the economy and being a modern writer that were just musings of her own and kind of created this like literary device to be able to do that, which is like I guess not necessarily a bad thing, but it it doesn't feel very it doesn't feel relate- like for the audience. But it also like, okay. doesn't feel even believable because what best friends write huge fucking massive emails to each other like that mm. every day. Apparently they never text, they never talk on the phone. She loves they- an email, doesn't she? Like there's a lot of emails in normal people. Yeah. And I get that she's you know trying to use the internet because we are in like an internet culture right now but i just found it kind of i was just like no best friends talk to each other like this over email they do when they're i mean me and you talk like that like (laughs) exactly like that it's like sally rooney's brain weeks i've been thinking about the collapse of the bronze age what do you (laughs) think yes do i look hot in this outfit yeah (laughs) Yeah. but we will have conversations like that but exactly like you say we'll have conversations like that and they'll be we'll be having dinner and we'll chat about, you know, how fucked whatever late stage capitalism is and then be chatting about an outfit within five minutes. And this, it just felt all a bit unbelievable. And also it felt just, it felt like you say, as though she was trying to shove in so many ideas, which I think is a, I think is a great thing because obviously that book is reaching millions and millions and millions and millions of people. Mm. And it, and it's great to have millions and millions of people being exposed to these thoughts, but I think she did it so much better in conversations with friends, which is what they were saying on the culture by the seven AM people, the podcast people. They were saying that in conversations with friends, which is so true, these conversations were happening in a similar way, but they were happening between people, and there was dialogue, and it was just so much more believable and so much more kind of. It's way harder to put it into a conversation mm. and make it flow than it is to put it in this huge fucking email, dense email that had my eyes glazing over because I was like, "What are we fucking talking about now? The collapse of the Berlin Wall?" Yeah, and then with normal people, it was a bit more lighthearted and a bit less 
heavy on the like Marxism. But it, yeah, and with normal people, it almost made the point stronger by being more subtle, which yeah, was exactly. the, the power imbalances of money in a sexual relationship experimenting with that and how in working class areas looks is the most important thing whereas in elite spaces looks are irrelevant and wealth is the most important thing and and, and intelligence intelligence is the most important thing and and how that affects a sexual relationship is so fascinating and i think that's why that book was so successful Whereas, yeah, like with this, it almost felt like she'd written a plot around these emails because she needed to have a plot because it was a book. And on that topic of what you said, like who does that, who writes these emails, I think uh, what I've realized reading some criticism of Sally Rooney is that like Sally Rooney would do that. And I (laughs) think the thing, I read a really good piece by Becca Rothfeld in The Point and it was criticizing it was before – this new book came out. And I do feel a bit like Sally Rooney became so popular and then people had to do these like pieces tearing her down because she Mm. can't be that popular. But this piece kind of said that there's a frustrating thing about Sally Rooney in the way she talks about herself where she constantly is underlining the fact that she's completely normal and this could have happened to anyone and she's like no different to anybody else and she really pushes against this idea of being like a literary genius or anything and she just really likes to present herself as being the kind of every man and that that can be her downfall because she is extremely unusual in like how well-read she is she kind of said in the this the cut interview i listened to she was like oh my god i'd never even started reading Tolstoy. I never even started reading Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or anything until I was like 20. And I was like, that's so annoying to say. Yeah. But I think that she's got this idea of herself that's different to what she actually yeah. is. And Which can so be... many privileged people have. Yes. And it's, it's, it's frustrating because it would just be cooler, like uh, this uh, Becca writer in The Point pulled out a um, segment from the essay, famous essay she wrote in 2015 about quitting debating that was talking about how much she loved winning and how much she loved going for the jugular and how much she loved being the best of the best of the best and how that was the only time she felt happy and this writer said this is when i like her because when you're as brilliant as her you try really hard you care a lot you're not like normal people you're thinking about ideas on this extremely deep level that most people don't and you're probably sending emails like the emails in this book to Mm. your equally insanely intelligent privileged friends and that's totally fine Mm. just own it just own it and don't make it feel like it's part of everyday whatever parlance and stuff so yeah i do think that's part of what she's grappling with is that she's aware that she's hyper privileged and not normal but she's trying to also make a book that feels very relatable and normal and everyday yeah it's also funny because basically the way i was reading some of the stuff she was saying and i said this to you because i was reading it on the plane yesterday as i was kind of like we all know the sally about sexuality because she was just like talking about I don't know sex drives and being a sexual person and all of these things and I was like haven't we all been having these conversations and I know that that's not true but they were also saying in the 7am podcast that the one of the girls who was interviewed on it said she was talking to her Gen Z friend and her Gen Z friend said a similar thing where she was just like we all know the world is fucked. Like, we're beyond that now. It felt and, a little, like, naive parts of it. Yeah. Where she was like, how do we go on living when there's a climate crisis and economic inequality? She, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. And I was like... Yeah, she talked about oh. how she goes into the supermarket and can't figure out what to buy because she can't stop thinking about all of the people in, like, impoverished countries who are having to get the food for us. And I was like, yes. Yeah. And then, um, <laughs> but then also, it's like, I find one of the most interesting point, parts of it is this literally this exact thing that we've talked about before so many times, how 
these characters are grappling with all of these thoughts while just continuing to do absolutely nothing about it. Yes, and I think that's another – the thing – that was another criticism I read about her that I loved. I think it was Lauren Euler, who's, like, a really great writer and – Grace's girl crush. Reviewer, my girl crush. But she – sometimes she annoys me annoys me because she's very, like, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. So, like, kind of drives me crazy. But she was saying about Sally Rooney that – if she didn't feel so earnest in who she is, her books would be like this perfect encapsulation of our generation where they talk, talk, talk about all this shit and don't do anything and just sit in the privilege that they're actually really happy to have. Yeah. Because that's essentially what's at the heart of normal people. Everyone's going on and on and on about it, but it's like Connell gets the scholarship. So his yeah. money problems actually don't aren't problems. Yeah. It's like Marianne gets the scholarship and in the real world he wouldn't get one and he'd have to drop out and he'd end up working a working class whatever job and she wouldn't and that's what it would be like. But in the world of Sally Rooney, he gets one too, so he's fine. And then yeah. he gets into an NYU writers program and they're probably just going to stay together and it's going to be fine. Like it's very rose-tinted glasses. But if you're a privileged person, that is just how the world looks to you because you can talk and talk and sit with your friends and drink wine and be at dinner parties and go on and on about it and talk about it really intellectually, but nothing changes because you're not that invested in anything changing. Mm. And I think she captures that amazingly in her writing, but I think she thinks that she's doing something profound with that writing versus being aware of the fact that she's almost parodying our culture. Yes, Um, 100% agree. One thing that I really 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 like about her writing is her writing is beautiful like just to yeah i find her writing beautiful but i kept finding it i don't know i guess i guess she wrote normal people in conversations with friends in the same way but i kept finding it off-putting how she would describe the people in in the third person for some reason which this is her only is this her only book in oh okay i can't i like can't remember but i was just like when she was she was like Alice walked briskly down the street. She was wearing a blah blah jumper, and I was like, I don't know why. She loves like a grey sweater. Yeah, in the back of the book, (laughs) she's wearing a grey fucking sweater. She literally described Alice being at an event wearing a grey turtleneck and black pants. I was like, Sally Rooney, fucking hell. But what I love, love about her writing and what I think she does brilliantly is how she writes sex scenes. Mm, So hard to do. Yeah, but she she does them in like every single time she writes a sex scene, it is the most kind of visually descriptive thing in my head i can just see the entire thing happening she does it in the most kind of it's like awkward and real but still really sexy mm-hmm. at the same time she does like the scene where one of the characters is talking to another character on the phone i was like you guys would just be together okay, I, this I don't is, even I understand say, this, this like, stupid fucking plot this is a spoiler jump forward one minute if you don't want to hear a spoiler. But I saw a reviewer be like, the thing that sucks about this book is that with these two couples, one so obviously should break up after five minutes and the other one, you don't even understand why they're not together after two minutes. And I was like, that kind of is the whole book. That's literally true. <laughs> it's like, I, it does it. You're like, why am I invested? And then they just get together and you're like, oh. Oh, I haven't finished, but thanks. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Spoilers for everyone, including Izzy. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Like, I thought at first he it was unrequited and he didn't like her and he was just a bit of a fuckboy and, like, kept her hanging on. I was like, that's relatable. Yes. The older guy who's, like, yes. really, really good looking. And then, and then Sally, and then she goes, she talked about how good looking the girl was as well, how she was just really, 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 really hot. And I was like, wait, what? I just thought she was obsessed with this, like, older, good looking guy from her childhood who would never pay her and attention and only hooked up with her when he was heartbroken over his ex because he just wanted a bit of validation. But no, turns out she's really hot too and he also wants to go out with her. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's just what? everything's just fine. Yeah, I was like, this like, doesn't uh, happen yeah. ever. But yeah, the sex scenes are fucking hot and really, really well written. I agree. Very, yeah, they're very 
I don't know if they're more horny, if they're less horny than normal people, or if it's just because we've watched normal people that we're like reminded of viscerally of how horny it was. I think they're less horny because normal people, they were just, they were like that teenage, like, yeah, it was that, yeah, they were so sexual. They were just, it was just such a sexual relationship. (sighs) I want to rewatch normal people. No. Um, okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah. This is a funny review. I think this is in The Guardian. It kind of just reiterates what we were saying before, but it's like, one might expect these chapters at least to offer deeper insight into their friendship, but they more read like extended abstract musings on the general state of the world. I've been thinking lately about right-wing politics, haven't we all, writes Alice in her first email to Eileen, and how it is that conservatism, the social force, came to be associated with rapacious market capitalism. Eileen's response, I've also been thinking lately about time and political conservatism. Conser- Why can't I say that? Conservatism, although in a different way. At the moment, I think it's Fair to say that we're living in a period of historical crisis, and this idea seems to be accepted by most of the population. These messages sound as implausible as the notion that two 29-year-old best friends would do their correspondence via email. Yes. Yeah. And someone else said it's as if McDonald's insisted on showing customers footage from the abattoir as they truck into their Big Macs. Yes. Totally. Because people want – people – I think – that's what's annoying about it, and that's what she did so well in Conversations with Friends, and I know you're about to read it, is – you're putting these points in people's brains, but you're doing it in a way that they don't realize that. So it's so much more tricky and so much more effective because right now I'm, I literally was reading those emails and like glazing over them and just being like, when are these fucking bitches going to shut up and get back to the bussing? Getting back to the bussing. And that's what I think is, it's like evidence of what Sally Rooney criticizes about modern writers, which is that they're out of touch with everyone else, is that I think because Sally Rooney's been so allured and obsessed over as this genius, she thinks that what she's writing is this amazing, intuitive thing that other people don't know until she's bringing it to them. Whereas it's like, no, everyone's talking about this. Like, and we're she, all on Twitter. We all fucking know. But like, she also said that she hasn't well. been reading any recent books and probably hasn't been really on the internet yeah it does yeah kind of i would actually recommend did you read fake accounts yet no i have it at my house okay so fake accounts by lauren oiler i would actually argue is like this book done better it has a lot of similar themes it has a lot of it's touching on a lot of the same points but i think it's done in a much more fleshed out thoughtful kind of literary way i find i find it quite crazy that she submitted this and that her book publishers weren't like, oh, just Keep get time. rid of the emails. And then it would be like a novella. It would be like 80 pages. No, but as in get rid of the emails. No, like in general. Print yeah. all the emails out and then get those girls together for a couple of wines. Yeah. Or even just put the, those things in conversations with any of those people. She did so well, the, the like – awkwardness of the first date when Alice and Felix That's great. meet. Yeah. They, she does that so well, but she could have included a bit more about how he's working in a factory. Yeah, and, or it and, could be that, th- and that she's Alice is fucking really fucking pretentious and starts being like, I don't know if you know about this, but like the late capitalism, blah, blah. And he'd be like, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I have a fucking Twitter account. I yes. know. And then they talk and he like goes back at her and zings at her. And then she's like, oh, I'm caught off guard because she thinks she's so smart. And yeah. then they're arguing and she realizes that he's smarter than her on certain things yes. or whatever. And it could be about how like the intelligence you're really patronizing towards the working class or something. Yeah. I said before I loved this book and now the more we're talking, I'm like, I didn't like it. But right, I, just, well, I, I finished it with the feeling of, I'm glad I read that. That was a good use of my time. I think this was a good type book. I think she's a very strong writer. 
but it's obviously imperfect. Yeah, which is just it's just disappointing after so long. But also, I guess it's hard when someone when people put you on that much of a pedestal to not. It was reminding me of Lord, like when we talked about Lord. Yes, it's the opposite of Lord, where Lord was just too having too much fun that she like rung in her album a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but it's like that vibe of when you've got so much pressure that you, you kind of just need to be like, I'm just going to do my own thing, and it just might not work, but I just need to do that. Yeah, it's too Sally, much to think about. Yeah, Sally really kind of feels like she got caught up in her own neurosis, and she was trying. She was trying so hard to figure out how to write a novel with the immense privilege and how different her life is that she thought, I'll just write about that. And everyone's like, this is just not really relatable. <laughs> like, I yeah. don't really understand you moving in these literary circles with all these big shot editors. It's just, it's just, yeah. I think the the email thing was a random thing. I think it's cool. Like, I think it's interesting and really, really ambitious that she made Alice herself. But I also think that that wasn't super necessary i think she could have made alice a really rich character and like as in really wealthy privileged character in other ways and still funneled a lot of her own now new lived experiences into it and it would have been better yeah yep yeah agree last thing i'll say is uh there's a book called summer by ali smith and it uses this device of uh prose and then a text and in that book, it's a woman reading her late wife's notes for a lecture on literature or modern art or something. And it's really beautifully woven in how this person who she's like missing and grieving for wrote about like grief and topics around death in art. And then so this art history is like how she's kind of trying to make sense of grief. And it was like doing that exact same thing where it would flick between someone going about their day to day and doing stuff and then reading out of her essay. But it felt very thought out and things so i think that tactic that she's used can work really well i just mm. think it, it i didn't fully land yeah but that was like similar to i love dick yeah right yeah i love dick was like that as well right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Dirt. yeah yeah and that was the best book ever written. <laughs> yeah facts <laughs> okay bye hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.